I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. This is part two of our conversation with Jonathan Rauch on how do we know what's true? Now, in part one, our host, Emil, teased out that question with Jonathan. So if you missed that, I really encourage you to press pause and go back and have a listen, as it will contextualize some of the conversation you were about to hear. For everyone else, here's a quick refresher. Humans have a hunger for, for ground truth, you know, for absolute truth, unquestionable truth. And, and you never get that in the Constitution of Knowledge. What you get instead is a, a global process of, of error checking. It's millions of people around the world, thousands of institutions, all searching for each other's errors. That's emotionally kind of unsatisfying because it means, you know, you can't ever be completely sure you're right. But as a social production system for knowledge, it beats everything else hollow. Now, in principle of charity on the couch, Lloyd gets personal with our expert guest and asks some hard, edgy questions. Enjoy. Jonathan, thank you so much. You know, in the principle of charity, we are often focused on trying to get to the truth by focusing on the strongest argument of the other, but equally on the limitations of one's own argument. And when you were chatting with Emil, what I loved was the just the concept of we've all got, we can see the bias in the other, but we often can't see you know, the bias in ourselves. When you look at the constitution of knowledge um, as a theory, as a framework, what do you think the three biggest limitations are of your theory and your view? Biggest limitations? It's, it's such a good question. The first limitation is that the constitution of knowledge will never be complete and it will never be emotionally satisfying. It is a very good set of rules for regulating public disagreements and turning them into knowledge, but it cannot answer fundamental questions of our lives, like why are we here? It won't fill the spiritual void in our souls, if we have one. It's quite limited in its range and purposes to public issues and events. Now, to me, that's a strength because it means it leaves room for, for example, faith. That's some of the best scientists in the world. Francis Collins, for instance, are also people of devout religion. So to me, that's a plus. But it also means that by itself, it can't fully satisfy us. Uh, Never will and and shouldn't try. Um, And when people try to turn science into an all-purpose answer for everything, um, they go amiss. It's called um, mm-hmm. 
scientization, scientism, it's, it's sometimes called this fallacy. So that's something that we need to be careful of. There's the limitation on certainty that's disorienting. It's disruptive. There's something that Emil mentioned earlier, which is the tendency to arrogance. Um, mm-hmm. The principles of the constitution of knowledge, the principles of fallibilism and empiricism, by their nature, should require us to be humble because we can't adjudicate truth. We have to concede we might always be wrong and we have to submit our views to the criticisms, often very harsh of many others. But but let's face it, when we get to be experts and authorities and begin to win prizes, um, it's very easy to believe our own press and to come to think that we shouldn't be questioned, needn't be questioned, to become arrogant, to forget that we have to explain ourselves. I think we saw a little of that in the response to COVID. Not all that much. I'm not as critical of someone like Anthony Fauci as a lot of people. Uh, but we need to be on guard against the tendency to think that that achieved status translates into personal authority. That's always a risk, and, and I suppose it, it goes with the turf. Um, so I think that would be another one. I have I have tilled these these fields now for 30 years. And on the side of pure argument, you know, the, the big chink in the armor, the reason that, that the ideas of the constitution of knowledge are wrong, I haven't seen it. If there is a killer argument out there, something that can't be taken on board or adjusted to, I, I haven't seen it. And I know the common ones. We've already discussed some of them, that this is bad for minorities, for example, that it's all a power play. Can I, can I just choose the tack of political activism for the moment, whether it's on the right or the left. And when you were chatting to Emil, I think, you know, a part, it seems, of of your approach in the constitution of knowledge is a sort of conservatism. There's a sort of a gradualism about science um, and about the approach. I mean, if, if you thought even about trolling, and we took a sort of radical view of trolling and cancel culture as a type of political insurrection, uh, against the elites and the most powerful. I mean, doesn't the constitution of knowledge demand a lot of patience from people who feel quite victimized and quite powerless? I mean, are, are you not demanding a lot of patience from people who are feeling high levels of oppression at times? Yeah. A good example of that is an old example, Christian scientists. What do you do with someone who's who's deepest, strongest belief would militate against treating their child for some treatable disease? Um, That is a hard question for a liberal society because we can say that the child would be better off medically treated, but the Christian scientists would feel deeply aggrieved at being excluded. The same is true of creationists, for example. They believe that their views of how the world was created and where species came from should be presented in textbooks alongside Darwinian biology. And they've often gone to court and said, look, we're not asking for exclusivity. You're the ones demanding exclusivity. We just want equal time for our views. Um, And the Constitution of Knowledge is quite ruthless about that. It says, look, if you haven't done the work, if you haven't gone through this whole process of vetting and hundreds and thousands of people looking at it from many different perspectives, 
you don't get in the textbooks. So yeah, it's exclusive. It's monopolistic in the public sphere over knowledge. It says you can't go off and have your own separate knowledge and set that up in the schools. And yes, that becomes a source of unhappiness and grievance. And the answer to that has to be, it's it's an important thing to do if you want to keep a society in touch with reality and have a, fr- a space that's free for those alternative traditions to flourish. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting conversation because we did have a podcast with Tim mention on the limitations of the principle of charity. And, and obviously the principle of charity demands listening, understanding, but there seem to be certain situations when people are feeling very victimized or oppressed where um, that type of process of being quite rational and understanding doesn't always work. It's, it, it, it's asking people to sit with a lot of pain for a long period of time at times. Well, I don't know about asking them to sit with a lot of pain because it's not as if there's nothing they can do about it. Um, as I keep emphasizing, one of the distinctive characteristics of the reality-based community that's really different from any other system that's been tried is its permeability to alternative points of view. And I, I say this until I'm blue in the face, but I'm a living example of that. Um, in 1995, I joined the campaign for same-sex marriage. And many of the arguments against it were empirical. They claimed to be scientific, you know, it would destroy marriage, family, whatever. And we shot them down. Uh, This is a system in which those very people, those people who have complaints with the order of knowledge, with how it's being derived, if they think it's unfair, if they think it's wrong, they are welcome to make their case. It will be difficult at first. It's always hard to fight your way Mm. in from the outside. But we have case after case after case in this system of minorities who have come in and established that they were right. I'm one of them. Can, can we just go to something more personal? You, you, you know, your book, Denial, My 25 Years Without a Soul, uh, a memoir of your struggle with, with your sexuality, as I understand. When have you struggled personally to tell the truth? The obvious answer, so obvious that I, I hesitate to state it, is the one you implied in your question, which is the 25 years that I spent being afraid of who I was, hiding it, including from myself, lying, including from to myself. We're, we're wired as humans. We're good at lying to ourselves because mm-hmm. if we convince ourselves of a falsehood, it's easier to convince others. Um, and that's something that, that advantages us. Um, so I couldn't face that truth for many years. And, and it was a wretched situation um, and a revelation when I finally could. I think that would be the main example. I have been fortunate in my career in that because I'm a journalist and because I've worked for institutions that have integrity, I have never been told to lie and I've never felt the need to lie. Are there occasions when I've wished, withheld things that I knew? Yeah, that's that's happened. You know, People have told me stuff that I haven't printed. But I think that's really about the extent of it. So, you know, if you were giving counsel, I mean, looking at the constitution of knowledge, and I understand it can't be applied to, I assume, lots of personal dimensions, or, or can it? Can, do you think, do you think your, your framework can be applied to personal relationships? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, we, we go through life, and we often meet people who, who disagree with us in very fundamental ways. And that's happening in the United States now. 
every day because we become so polarized. I think it's probably true in many countries. And there are a couple of different ways to handle that. And one of them is just to say, well, I'm right. The other person is wrong. Um, I don't have much to learn from them. They're probably immoral because, I don't know, they voted for Trump or they voted for Hillary Clinton or whoever the case mm-hmm. may be. Um, the constitution of knowledge doesn't govern our personal lives, our interaction with others, but, but it does have an ethos about it, a sense of values, which are very healthy. Mm-hmm. And those are, remember that you might be wrong and remember to check your beliefs with others who think differently. And I found that that both as a journalist, as an individual, if if I approach, I don't know, someone like like Lloyd, in a spirit of curiosity and non-judgment, and start the conversation not with, here's why I think you're wrong, but why do you think you're right? Tell me about that. Tell me what experiences led you to this conclusion, that I can start a, a more productive conversation with that person, one in which both of us learn more. And I think that's an ethos that I learned from my training as as a journalist. It's a great question. I, I love that question because it sort of creates a, it's quite a strong relationship from the outset. Why do you think you're right? Actually, um, it, it it builds it builds the relationship before you start the conflict. Uh, I didn't come up with it. Um, I'm involved with a group called Braver Angels in the United States, probably coming to Australia soon, which is a grassroots depolarization movement which has developed a lot of techniques for how to hold workshops and how to uh, talk to other people. And they've found that the single most productive question to ask when starting a conversation in which you're likely to disagree is, is that one. It's what experiences led you to your belief? And so Jonathan, uh, you know, when, when you look at your life and we're just speaking about polarization now, you know, I think there's always a struggle, it would seem, for all of us between truth and harmony. And and how much do you compromise truth for harmony in relationships, in your relationships? The line I try to draw is, am I self-editing out of courtesy and because I think it will improve the conversation and lead us both to more knowledge? Or am I self-censoring because of fear, because of coercion, because of the use of coercive social tactics or sometimes just out-and-out force that makes me feel frightened. If it's the latter, then I'm in a manipulated epistemic environment where people are substituting social and moral and physical coercion for criticism and debate and openness. And that's the situation where if I'm not speaking up because I'm fearful, then we've got a situation that needs correcting. Now, sometimes a part of the correction is I need to speak up and be less fearful. I think that's true of thousands of tenured academics in the United States who have allowed themselves to be intimidated by activists. But very often the problem is in the system, and we see that too. Uh, activists, ideologues have become very good at manipulating social environments coercively, so you're fearful of being investigated or mobbed or dragged on social media or fired from your job if you speak out. That's increasing in the United States. It's a serious threat to the constitution of knowledge. And if that's what's going on, that's not good. There seems to be a sort of double bind sometimes that some people experience, particularly when a minority group or a group that has experienced a lot of victimization and has suffered a great deal. The message seems to be, you must understand me, but you also can't understand me because of who you are. And and, and how do we engage in that conversation when the individual has that experience? Meaning... 
I'm desperate for you to understand me, but your experience is so different, you'll never understand me. A fundamental rock on which the constitution of knowledge stands is that we never fully understand each other's experiences. We can't live in each other's shoes, and the miracle is we don't need to. We can exchange propositions about each other. We can use language and the search for knowledge. We can use conversation to reveal most of what we need to know about each other in a, in a rational way. And again, I've, I've lived this. You know, I, I talk to mm-hmm. straight people all the time. I don't really understand what it's like to live with their sexuality, nor they do they understand what it's like to live with mine. But it turns out we don't really need to because they can imagine themselves in my space morally, and I can imagine themselves in their space morally, and then we can trade propositions and critique those propositions. So it's, it's, it's simply empirically false that you have to be like the other person or see the, other, see the world the way the other person does in, in order to have a, mirac- a, a meaningful dialogue. It's, it's the very diversity of viewpoint that allows us to find knowledge across these differences. So I guess what I'm saying is the very proposition that we can't stand, we can't understand each other well enough to have a meaningful yeah. conversation is, is just wrong. Jonathan, just to change tack, what, what has really been quite wonderful in this conversation has been actually your, your optimism. I sort of look at it and I think, you know, you may have seen that 2018 MIT study. I think you, you may even reference it. Uh, which found that falsehoods are, what, 70% more likely to be tweeted than, than truths. And, and when you have that, when you see a significant proportion of, of your community, your country voting for Donald Trump, some believe he, he, him to be a prophet, you've spoken about how you believe Trump has denigrated in part accountability to truth. Why, why are you hopeful? Well, I distinguish hope from optimism because uh, I'm not quite at optimism yet. There's a lot. So of you're a hopeful realist. Would, would that be more accurate? Yeah, I, I think that there's a whole lot that can be done to defend and extend and strengthen the constitutional knowledge. Just tons that can be done by individuals and by institutions in every walk of life. It's it's not one or two things. Uh, by one or two institutions, it's it's multiples of things, and we can we can get into that. Um, so I'm hopeful that there's a huge amount that can be done. I'm not optimistic because I don't assume that this comes out well in the end. I don't think we know that yet. The tactics that we've talked about, for example, the use of canceling um, in order to create an environment of intimidation in which real debate can't flourish, or the use of Russian-style mass disinformation to pollute the epistemic environment to make room for demagogues. Um, these are powerful and sophisticated and time-tested tools that play with our brains. And mm. we have not yet risen to the challenge of defeating them. Can we? Yes. Uh, are there good signs? Absolutely. We are starting to see social media take the problem seriously. It's a very hard problem, but they are working on changing algorithms and improving architecture so that they will be less biased against truth. We just saw the most successful anti-disinformation campaign in American history waged in Ukraine by the U.S. government. Uh, they used a technique called pre-bunking, which is you alert people to the disinformation that's coming. That weakens the disinformation. And in fact, it discouraged Putin from doing some of it. Um, we're seeing growing interest in academia in stimulating more debate, more, more heterodoxy. There are new groups that are trying to do that. So we're seeing promising signs in various fields. Are we seeing enough Absolutely not. We're not there yet. So 
Hopefully, yes. Lots of avenues. Will we pursue them? Will we have the strength and vision? That I that I can't tell you. I, I have a history of activism. Um, I dealt a lot with human rights abuses in South Africa. And it really used to irritate me that people wanted to close their eyes to, to human rights abuses. It was just either they weren't interested, but for some, maybe it was just that they were too, it was too painful. And, you know, I, 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 I look at myself today, you know, should I look at the news about the Ukraine and I go, no, I don't, I don't want to depress myself. Do I want to look at the, the, the latest David Attenborough documentary on the collapse you know, of the environment. And I go, well, no, I don't know if I want to depress myself. And is it possible that we can't get to the truth because it is just too painful? That for some people, they just don't want to go there. And so they exclude themselves from the conversation because the pain of the truth is just too much. And what, what's your counsel to people like me? <laughs> sure, every day I'm one of those people. So are you. You know, I'm I'm an atheist. And from my point of view, the things people think about God and religion are myths that people tell themselves in order to not have to confront the existential fact that we're, we're globs of cells that happen to come along in a universe that's blind to our needs. That's, that's not a nice truth, and I don't blame anyone who would really rather not confront it. Um, I'm not denigrating religion. I'm, I, compl- I quite understand and in some ways wish that I could believe the things religious people believe. There are Lots of truths that we either can't understand because they're too complicated or want to avert our eyes from. And that's just human nature. And the constitution of knowledge doesn't require us to be expert in everything or to undertake to right every epistemic wrong. Um, It just says in your own sphere, when you're interacting with truth, with falsehoods, with fact, with fiction, when you're making assertions in the public realm, we're not talking about your dinner table, do it right. If you're in an institution, make sure it follows these rules. For example, if you see it discriminating unfairly against viewpoints by, for example, if you're in academia, in a sociology department where anyone conservative can't be hired, fix that. Do what you can about that. If you're on Twitter, behave as you would if the person was in the room. Be civil with them. Be truthful. Don't retweet something without checking it, at least a little bit. There are all of these small ways and all of these individual Mm. and personal ways in which we can influence our environment so that it is more conducive to truth and less conducive to falsehood Mm. and manipulation. And really, that's most of what most of us should be expected to do every day. I mean, you are asking each individual to lift their game, to make the constitution of knowledge work. Well, I guess I'm asking them to resist temptations um, that are very human. And we see that every day on, you know, I don't know, Twitter. We're thrust mm. in these environments where we're, we're tempted to be impulsive and mm. cruel, um, mm. to disregard truth, to take shortcuts. And yeah, I'm saying, just as the founding fathers of America said, the Constitution won't amount to a hill of beans if we don't respect the law, for example, um, Constitutional knowledge doesn't amount to a hill of beans if we don't try to respect facts and try to be conscientious. Mm. So yeah, I'm asking people to raise their game. I'm asking them to follow rules. And I'm asking them also to help look at their own institutions and look for ways to strengthen and improve them. And to break out of their tribes. Yep. The system will do that for you if you let it work. In order to make knowledge, (laughs) you'll have to confront the other tribes. But that's right. 
And don't look for excuses to hide from criticism, you know. Don't don't say you're too emotionally traumatized, for example. Go out there and face it. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.